you probably feel that the world is divided. And you may feel that in different ways, but you probably feel that there is division in the world, whether you want to look at the big scale of things, if there's war and conflict between countries and nations and peoples, or you want to think about politics, you probably don't want to think about politics, but if you want to think about politics, there's a lot of division in the political campaigning that takes place. We are supposed to be united, we stand, it's in our very name, the United States of America, but during all the time, but especially during election season, there's a lot of division that is felt, a lot of division that is even used for campaigns. You may feel it in just the sense that uh, there's certain people that maybe you would like or follow, but you can't associate with certain people. Oh, you like them, or oh, you listen to that person. You can't do that, can't say that, can't be identified with certain people. Maybe you just feel it in your families. Sometimes in extended families over the holidays, there's division, there's certain topics that you know will create a lot of tension. It happens in churches, especially over the last few years. There was a lot of tension, a lot of division within churches where people felt like, I, I, don't, I, I don't like this anymore, and I want to be p- with people that are just the same as me. I, I don't want to have to experience any kind of tension. Would you say, this is, don't you know, shout out loud or anything, but would you say that over the last five years, three years, that the world feels more or less divided? more or less united. I think that division is increasing. We are experiencing a greater and greater polarization, more extremes. But we want unity. Everybody wants unity. We want to experience the feelings and the actual tangible, practical outcomes of being united. We want that. That's part of why people like to be a part of a team, whether that's work or sports. You, you like to be a part of a team where everyone collectively is coming together and working for the same cause and feeling some camaraderie and being able to achieve certain goals and experience movement and progress because there is unity that takes place. With unity, there's a lot of beautiful things that can happen. There's, there's a lot of strength and bonding that's able to take place. But with division... That goes away. We want unity, but the reality is we experience a lot of division. You may feel this in different ways. Maybe you feel it relationally with certain people. Maybe it's increased over some of the years where it just feels like there's greater and greater tension. Maybe you feel like you have to be careful what you say at work or around certain people. Maybe it's just in the world that you feel this. Maybe you don't really feel much of it at all in your personal life. And yet, oftentimes, when we come to God's word, it isn't even just what we're experiencing right now, but God wants to prepare us for things to come. I think the church in America was ill-prepared for some of the events of the last few years and experienced a lot of division. So sometimes, maybe it's just what God wants to strengthen and prepare you for what may come. God wants more for us than experiencing division, tension. He wants to give us unity. 
I don't know if you know this, but before Jesus died, as he was praying in the garden, before he went to the cross, one of the main things that he prayed for was for the unity of his people, that they would be one, that there would be this deep unity that they would experience. That means that obviously he knew that it would be difficult, otherwise he wouldn't be spending so much time praying for it. It means that he knew how important it was and how necessary it is for our life and our faith. Unity. It it matters deeply, and yet it is difficult. So how do we experience unity? God wants to give us the strength and the mission and the common bonding and purpose that can come from unity, but how do we get that? That's the first thing that Paul's going to address in this letter. We looked at the intro last week where he's just thanking God for them and the things that God has done in their life and God's vision for them and that they belong to him and some beautiful things that he puts in the intro. And yet this is the most messed up church in the New Testament. It's the whole, so sometimes you might read the intro and be like, man, this seems like this is great, but Paul is encouraging them and pointing out things that are good and true that God has done. And now he jumps into, all right, let's get into the issues. And there's a lot of issues. And the first one that he begins with, in part because even though you might not think about it, unity and division affects all the other issues. It was filtered through many of the different things that they were experiencing. And that is true in our life, whether we always understand that or not. So let's read what he says and then talk about how we can experience unity. Here's what he says. Now, so after his intro, after the thanksgiving to God and what God has done, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people. Chloe worked for the CIA. You know, I don't know. She just, she's just a, a holy tattletale. And that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall. I love, he's, he's like, wait a minute. As he's talking more and more, he's like, well, there was also that guy. Oh, I forgot about that guy. Oh, this one too. And then, never mind. I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Start with this. What kind of unity do we need? What kind of unity do we need? And maybe even just asking, is it actually needed? Is unity needed? Is it maybe just an extra thing, an optional thing? It would be nice if you had it, but it's not all that important. Maybe it's even sure that's a great idea, but pretty unrealistic in our day. Don't be naive. Paul says, no, it's very important. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, reminding them you are family. 
and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's adding a lot of weight to this call for unity. He's not just saying, hey, you know, it would be nice if we all could get along, right? He is saying, I urge you, you are family in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he obviously sees this as something that is very important, not an optional extra. He's talking about within the church, right? So he's not just saying with everybody around you and all the people of the world. He is specifically talking about in the church. And maybe you have felt this in the church. Maybe you felt tension with people. Maybe within your community group, maybe within certain relationships, maybe you've felt walls between people. Paul is saying we cannot be okay with the loss of unity. We can't just settle for it. We can't just say that's just the way things are. So if you have at any point, or if you do currently, feel some of what Paul is addressing here, and again, maybe you don't, maybe this is just preparatory, But if you have felt that, Paul is saying you can't be okay with it. Don't let it just sit there. Don't let it fester. I'm urging you in the name of Jesus to have unity. He's saying that this is very important. We do, in fact, need unity. What kind? It's easy to confuse this. The word unity gets thrown around a lot getting along and not being divided, it gets thrown around a lot. And it's easy to confuse what that actually means. We might think what unity means is we just tolerate everything so that there's no disruption. This side of the room does this, this side of the room does this, this side of the room, you know, they just kind of do both things and and we we just want to tolerate everything so that we can be united. Sometimes we think that's what unity means. Sometimes we think that what unity means is for the sake of let's all just get along, that we, we water down any sort of belief into let's just be loving people. Let's, maybe we, can't we all just agree that we agree in a higher power? Or we all believe even in God? Or can't we all agree on certain things? And there's kind of a lowest common denominator approach to unity that says, don't, don't have too many beliefs. Don't have too many morals or ethics. Let's just all get along. But the basis of that unity is nothing. Love, what is love? You have to define what love is. Love is the ultimate good for another person, but that has to come from some kind of beliefs. It's impossible to just say, let's tolerate everything and can't we all get along? Because we know, obviously, there's extremes that fall off bounds. Let's just tolerate the KKK. Let's just be okay with that. People would say, no. So you can't have a unity that is really a let's just kind of be quiet and not talk about anything and say we all just have a common humanity. That isn't a strong enough basis for unity. Sometimes almost the opposite, people think that the kind of unity we need is the exact sameness. And the only way to have unity is if we all think the exact same thing, agree on everything, have the same passions and beliefs. Sometimes this comes out when people get upset with others. Why don't you care about what I care about? 
Why aren't you passionate about this certain cause or this certain idea that I'm passionate about? And it might be a good thing. But it's presumed that to be united, we all have to think the exact same way. We all have to be exactly passionate about the same things and be able to check all the same boxes and dress in the same way and think the same way and do all the same things and watch all the same things and read all the same things. And there's no unity if there's not uniformity. This is also not the kind of unity that Paul is talking about. But he does tell us two things of the kind of unity we need. First, he says, I want you to agree in what you say and that there be no divisions among you. And really what this ta is talking about is a relational unity. When he says, I want you to s agree in what you say, commentators say that even that phrase was used, not just that people would say the exact same things in some sort of robotic way, but it's really talking about taking the same side, having the same heart that you understand we're not enemies. We are not divided. It really is a relational unity. He's writing to people in the church saying, you know how easy it is to forget that you're actually on the same side. You know how easy it is to forget that your family I don't want there to be these schisms. That's the, the word that he uses comes from, that's where we get the word schism from. I don't want there to be these schisms. I don't want there to be these rips, these tears. Instead, I want you to understand you're on the same side. When we're talking about people in the church, these are not your enemies. These are not your enemies. This is a relational unity. Think about this. When, when people have a different view than you, particularly in the church, when people have a different view than you, how do you think about that? What goes through your mind? What goes through your heart? It's easy to begin to think in some ways like they are an enemy. It's easy to think they are a fool, that they're stupid, that they are just off, less than, and to view ourselves as against them. So when he's calling for agreement in what you say, and there being no divisions, he's calling for a humility. He's calling for a posture that says, I'm going to listen. I'm going to approach you not as an enemy, but as family. I'm going to approach you not as someone just to prove wrong, but as someone I want to listen to and care about because we're on the same side. That's how you treat people that are on the same side as you. You give them the benefit of the doubt. You seek to believe the best about them instead of imputing motives to them. You seek to have a charitable interpretation of their actions and their, and their lack of actions instead of saying, well, it's because they... You say, no, don't be divided. Don't, be, don't view yourself as against people. You're on the same side. So try to structure your thinking in that way. Try to approach people in that way. How would I talk to this person? How would I interpret this person if I really believed we're on the same side? That's the first kind of unity that he 
gives to us. It really is a relational unity. But then he gives us a different kind of unity, which is more around our beliefs. You've been united with the same understanding and the same conviction. Same understanding and same conviction. Now, there's all sorts of things that we disagree on that can be dumb, right? Some of you say, oh, man, this is the best pizza in Denver. And other people say, no, this is the best pizza in Denver. Some of you say, pizza's stupid. I like tacos or whatever, right? Some people say, this movie is so good. Other people say, no, you know, the new Star Wars is great. No, the old Star Wars is great. Star Wars is stupid, you nerd. I mean, there's all sorts of different opinions on things, right? That don't matter. That's not what Paul's talking about when he says have the same understanding and have the same conviction. He doesn't mean we have to agree on all these little details and every single thing is what we have to be able to say. Yes, we all think the exact same way. But what he is saying when he says have the same understanding and same conviction is that the Christian beliefs that have been handed down to us, we do need to be on the same page of. It is hard to have the kind of unity we long for if we don't share a set of core beliefs. Now, we know this in other things. That's why when you get a job and you, uh, you go through orientation, they walk you through the company's core values and the company's mission and its purpose because they are saying, this is what we believe. And if you said, I don't believe any of those things, then they wouldn't say, awesome, well, welcome to your first day of work. They would say, oh, well, this is probably not the best fit for you. Same values and the same beliefs. This is why even just simple things of when you buy a home, if there's an HOA, that there's certain agreements on, we are all committing to these things. You have to have beliefs in order to have unity. You couldn't say, I'm a Democrat. Okay, well, tell me about your political positions. And it was the Republican Party's platform. They would say, well, you can't be a part of us. They would ask you to leave because your beliefs don't unite with who they are. That happens in all different forms, whether it's politics or business or our country. We have a constitution that we're saying, we're agreeing on these things, these truths we hold to be, I don't have it all memorized, right? But with these things, they're self-evident in certain inalienable rights. But we're agreeing our country is operating collectively around these convictions, these beliefs. And if people get outside of those beliefs, if they don't adhere to those beliefs, that's where our laws are. So you have to have conviction and shared understanding in order to have unity. Sometimes we don't like to hear that. That's why I'm spending a little bit of time kind of giving you different illustrations. Because we like to think, well, can't we just all get along even though none of us agree about anything? Well, no, that's not really how any sphere of life works. It doesn't mean you can't be cordial to somebody or respect somebody, but you, but you can't have the kind of unity that's moving in the same direction, that is strengthened and bonded from outside forces, that gives a mutual affection for the people that are shared in it without shared understanding and shared conviction. That's why Paul says, be united relationally, but also be united in your understanding and your conviction. And what happens if people are not united in the understanding and conviction? What happens if it's different? Or what happens if it begins to drift? Or what happens if it develops into something new? Well, many, that's part of what happens in 1 Corinthians. 
Paul instructs, he teaches. He says, your beliefs are off, your convictions are off. Let me try to bring you back in line with them. That's what much of the New Testament is written to actually do. It's to say, well, some of your beliefs are starting to go the wrong way. Let me pull you back over here so that you can be united. That is our call as Christians. It's to be united in the same conviction, the same understanding. Now, here's what that means, okay? It means a couple things. First of all, it means if you're new to Christianity or exploring Christianity, what you need to be able to do is say, okay, I want to learn what the Bible says. I want to understand what the Bible says so that I can be united in the same convictions and same understandings. There's a learning component, which is why we have many letters in the New Testament teaching us here is what the beliefs are. That's part of what it means. So if you say, man, I'm not sure what I believe and I'm not sure where I'm at, that's okay. It's not that Paul would say or that we would say, well, get out until you learn. It's okay, so commit to being able to learn so you can have a shared understanding and shared conviction. That's one of the main things it means. But it also means, even if you do believe and if you do understand, to continue to deepen in those things. They would have known some of these things already, but our tendency is often to have some kind of beliefs, but then our life begins to be inconsistent with those in some way. And one of the effects could be division. There can be all sorts of effects. But we can say, as they would have, I believe these things. But Paul is saying, okay, but something has gone wrong where the understanding and conviction is being lost or it's being diluted or it's it's not as, as consistent as it used to be and it's showing up relationally. But it can show up in all sorts of ways. And so one of the things that we have to do is to return often to a deepening of our convictions. Return often to a refreshing of our understanding. It's not just that you learn, you know, we have kids back there right now learning. And it's not just when they turn 11 that they say, okay, I've learned everything I've learned. I'm good to go. But we have to return to the understanding and convictions or it begins not to show itself up in our life. And so, for some of you, maybe the application of this is to learn and to understand and to develop Christian biblical convictions so that this unity that Paul's talking about is created. For some of us, it is to deepen in that, which is part of why we are doing this core values class that's coming up. We want to help you understand and grow in a shared value and shared conviction so that together we have greater unity, which is one of the things that Jesus prays for and one of the things that is vital to our faith. So what what kind of unity do we need? It's not just an ignore everything and let's just all get along. It's not crossing every T and dotting every I that we're on the exact same page with peripheral things and we have to be the same, but it is a relational unity and a unity that comes as we pursue God's word together, where we say we are united around this and what God has given to us. That's the kind of unity we need. And second, why is it so difficult? What hurts our unity? Or how do we lose unity? What happened to them? 
You don't start divided. And this is true in many relationships, right? You don't start divided. I've never been to a wedding where the groom stood over here and the bride stood over here and they're like, yeah, let's just get this over with. I've never been to a wedding like that. People start united relationally. The same thing would have happened in Corinth, that the church started united and now Paul's been gone for a couple years and now there's division. So it is difficult to keep. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I don't think Paul covers every single reason, but there's a particular thing that's happening here in Corinth that can happen in our life as well. But I, I do want to show you this because I, I think it's just helpful for us. That after Paul presents this beautiful intro, I always thank my God for you, the grace of God given to you, you're enriched with these spiritual gifts. God's going to strengthen you to the end. You were called by him. Right after he presents, if you were here last week, I'm just kind of summarizing some of his statements. He, he presents this beautiful thing that many people would say, yes, that's what Christianity is supposed to be. That's what the church is supposed to be. Fellowship and loving God and loving one another. That's what it's supposed to be. Everybody working together. And right after that, the very next thing he says is, Chloe told me you're messing it up. There's rivalry among you. I actually love that that's the first thing he says because it's realistic, which is encouraging. Paul is saying this is often the normal experience of Christianity. This is important because if you think it's just verses 1 through 9, what we talked about last week, if you think that's it, if you think that's the totality of the Christian experience and the church experience is just fellowship and love and spiritual gifts and I thank God for you, if you think that's it, then what we have here, and I don't just mean here as in true life, but what we have here today in 2023 is really discouraging. So I love that Paul is a realistic Christian, a realistic pastor that can encourage them point out the good, and at the same time say, yeah, you guys are messed up. In fact, Chloe told me how messed up you are. You know? That's how bad it is. Not just Chloe, her people, members of Chloe's people. I think we need to start referring to certain groups here like that. Oh, yeah, members of you know, this person. <clears throat> if you think it's supposed to be easy, what happens is when things are hard, you leave. If you think it's supposed to be easy, what happens is then, and if you're exploring Christianity or faith, you say, see, Christians are just like everybody else. Christians are just bad. They're just divided. They're just, if you think it's supposed to be easy, then you might find yourself, and maybe some of you have been like this, you might find yourself saying, okay, I went to this church and eh, it didn't really work. So I went to this church and eh, it didn't really work. So I went to this church and whenever something begins to get difficult, we find something new. And most things that are new are easy for a minute. And then they're challenging. And so you might find yourself bouncing around. And maybe not even just churches, but relationships themselves within churches. Or you may look for people that just think the same way that you do. 
pursue unity by pursuing a false unity of just sameness. Paul says, I want you to have the right expectation. We are all sinners. There oftentimes in churches are people that are exploring faith and not Christians. There's people at various spectrums of their faith journey of just becoming a Christian and learning and growing. And with all of that mix, we're not some elite institution of we've all passed this certain exam and we're all this way and we've all reached this criteria. So there's a a safety. If you were to go to a doctor, you would want to know, okay, this doctor has passed certain exams. They've had a certain amount of school. Hopefully they know what they're doing. And I can expect this. You wouldn't want to go into a doctor that's going to perform surgery on you or some procedure and then say, you know, all doctors are messed up. We're, we're not really united around any, you know, certain things. We're all various journeys in our doctorness. And some of us, you know, we don't know that much. And some of us, we're not even sure we're actually doctors. And some of us, you know, you wouldn't want that. Christianity is different. The church is different. We are people that are not united by some elite status, but by the fact that we're saying we are sinners that need a savior or even people that are saying I'm exploring that reality. And so there will be difficulty. It is difficult. When I ask the question, why is unity difficult? I want you to first just see it is difficult. And then Paul gives us a reason here for them of why it was difficult. And again, I, this is not always the reason that unity is difficult, but here is one particular reason, and it was this alliance that these people had given to particular leaders. So he says, one of you says, I belong to Paul. Paul's the one writing, but he's not even okay with that. Certain groups are saying, I, you know, you might read this person, you might like this person, I belong to Paul. Or Apollos, who was another kind of famous preacher that's mentioned other places in the New Testament. He was known as a very eloquent speaker. And certain people were saying, yeah, Paul started the church, but then Apollos came and he gave us some really great teaching. I belong to Apollo. I follow him. I podcast him. I read Apollo's books. I like how Apollo says it. Some people were saying it about Cephas. Cephas is just another name. It's kind of an Aramaic translation of Peter's name, Peter, the apostle of Jesus. And so some people were saying, and maybe Peter had visited and preached there, or maybe they just knew about him. He's just kind of a celebrity pastor, celebrity apostle. And they say, well, you can like Paul and Apollos, but you know, I like Peter. He was one of Jesus's main guys and I follow him. And then commentators are kind of divided around what exactly this means. Some people think that Paul is saying, Actually, this is what you should say. Most of the commentators think that this is a separate group. And I would align with them um, experientially, meaning some people say this, where they just say, I don't follow anybody. I just follow Jesus. It's kind of the ultimate Jesus juke is what it's called, where you're just kind of the ultimate spiritual person. I don't read any books. I only listen to God. And listen, even when you look at denominations, there are certain denominations that have people's names attached to them. And I'm not saying this is all bad, okay? So don't uh, hear me saying that. But there's people that are called Calvinists. There's people that are called Lutherans, which is from Martin Luther. There's people that are called Mennonites, which is from 
can't remember his first name, but the guy's name was, oh, Menno Simmons. Okay. That was an amen. There's people that, uh, I think, uh, Mennonite, amen. Uh, there's people that are Arminians, which is from uh, Jacob Arminius. So we, uh, people attach names and say, I'm that. But then there's also denominations called the Disciples of Christ. Oh, really? Okay, well, I guess I chose the wrong one. Or the Church of Christ. Or the Church of God. So that's why, you know, commentators are kind of divided if Paul is saying it's not this, it actually is this. Or if it's another group that is kind of this hyper-spiritual group saying, I don't follow any human. I only follow Jesus. Probably the most annoying kind of all. But this is what was happening with them. They were allying themselves with certain leaders. Why were they doing that? Well, Paul doesn't give us a lot of information, but it's probably some of the same reasons that people do that today. Maybe they like the way that this leader spoke, or they like their particular emphasis of things, or they like their particular gifting in certain ways. And that's not all bad. It's okay to have your favorite author and your favorite you know, person that you like to listen to. That, that's not all bad. Paul's not trying to make that point. But what happens is when you say, I belong to this person, you are allying yourself to that person in such a way that your worth and your status comes from your allegiance to them. Now, in just a small way, we know this with sports teams, right? In a small way. Whether it's NFL or NBA, you ally yourself with a team and their glory is your glory. You say, we won. You didn't win. You were sitting on the couch. Ah, we lost. I hate that team. You don't even know them. They're most of them young men in their 20s that you hate. Oh, what a loser. That, we ally ourselves with certain people and feel their glory is our glory. And if somebody attacks them, you're attacking us. The way that some fights break out in games and people yell. We went to a hockey game recently. Great experience. Every other sport sucks now compared to hockey. <laughs> Extremely boring. I only want to go to hockey games from now on. Excellent experience. But the people in the stands, and some of it fueled by beverages, but the things that they would shout or say, I was just like, man, they don't. There's this vitriol, right, of we hate this side. Because when we ally ourselves with certain people, their glory is our glory. Their victory is our victory. Their loss is our loss. Those that are not aligned with them become enemies. Those that are against them are against us. We judge other people based on their alliance. Oh, you're one of those fans. The same thing happens with certain leaders at times, certain spiritual teachers. Oh, you read those books? Oh, you listen to that person? Oh, you follow that guy? Oh, you like her block? Now, are there false teachers in the church? Yes. Paul rebukes certain people and calls them out and says, do not listen to this person. Yes. So I'm not saying, again, a false unity of can't we all just get along? And 
But it's easy to ally ourselves with certain teachers and books and causes and ideas and use those to give ourselves a boost and divide against other people. So why is unity difficult? Well, ultimately, it is because of pride, which is what Paul is talking about. This is one way that that shows up. There's a lot of ways that pride gets in the way. But one particular way it shows up is this, where we attach our alliance and loyalty with a particular person, and we become so attached that then we're divided against the very people that we're with. Pulls us apart. We want to be seen as and want to be better than those around us, and we use our team or our teacher or our idea to be the thing that gives us a status. So how is unity formed then? There's a kind of unity we need that's relational and that is convictional. There's a difficulty this, to this unity that comes that is, we should understand, realistic, that will happen, but that comes as we have a pride that aligns ourselves with certain voices and people to the detriment of unification. So how is it formed? What creates unity or what restores unity when it's lost? So for some of you, maybe it's the very creation of unity. What will create a unity with other Christians? So for some of you, maybe it's what will restore it since it's starting to tear, it's broken. What mends it? What strengthens it? And we may think that what gives us unity or what the way that unity is formed is by just settling the issues. So let's talk it out. You've got your opinion. I've got my opinion. You've got your teacher. You've got Apollos. You've got Cephas. You've got, let's hash it out. We might think that's the way that unity gets formed. Let's talk about the issues. But that's not what Paul gives to us. What he's going to show us is that it actually is about God. Because, this is very important, all relational issues begin with God issues. All of our horizontal problems begin with our vertical problems. If you've got bitterness with other people, that begins with and starts with you and God. If you are hurt and experiencing hurt with other people, that begins with you and God. If you struggle to forgive other people, that begins with you and God. All of our relational issues start with our God issues. Because our hurt and our pride and our bitterness and our love or lack of love and our judgment and our self-righteousness and all those things that create division, they start with who you see God to be to you. They start with what you are experiencing from him how you are processing with him. I'll use forgiveness just as a small example, but if you know how much God has forgiven you, you're able to forgive others. If, you're, if, you're not, if you don't really see how much you've been forgiven, you'll struggle to be somebody that extends forgiveness and grace to other people. 
So Paul doesn't just say, let's hammer out the issues. He starts with God, and he gives three things that we have to see if we want unity to be formed. The first thing that he points out is this, and he asks it in a question. I guess this is not working, so we'll go up here. He says, is Christ divided? He's going to ask three questions, all of them rhetorical. Is Christ divided? The answer to that is no, Christ is not divided. Christ is not divided, which means this. They are his, which when I say they, I'm talking about the, the community, other people in the community. They belong to him, not just you. It's not as if there's kind of, I've got this part of Christ, and I've got this part of Christ, and I've got this part of Christ, and I've got, that Christ is not divided. The church is called Christ's body, the body of Christ. So he's saying they belong to him just as much as you belong to him. You're putting yourself against them. You're dividing against them, but they belong to him. There isn't, Christ doesn't have favorites. There isn't the JV Christ team and the varsity Christ team and the super elite Pro Bowl Christ team. Christ is not divided. So if we treat one another as if we are against one another. He's saying you're not treating each other like you're a part of the body of Christ because Christ is not divided. You are all one. So why are you against them when he's not against them? Why are you putting yourself in a position over them when that's not how he has designed it? Christ is not divided means we should not be divided. If you have been brought into his body, then you are a part of his body. This arm is not against this arm. Imagine how crazy that would be if I woke up and all of a sudden this arm was like, I hate this arm, and just you know, started wrestling myself to the ground or something. There is actually a disease called alien uh, hand syndrome. I think I've talked about this before because it's the most unique disease. You can look it up. But it's when people have a certain limb of their body, often their hand, that is against them. And you can... Look, you, know, you can think it's you know, made up or whatever, but it's a psychological, psychosomatic condition where people's hands are against them, trying to choke them and trying to, and they have to fight. It's just like how dads often play with their kids, you know? It's like, no, this is actually an evil hand, and you have to fight it, and it's crazy. Paul is saying, no, this is not that. Christ is not divided. Parts of the body are not against the body. It also means this. It means, so if, if he's not divided against them and it's not separate, then we shouldn't be. But it also means that you have all of him. You have all of him. You don't just have part of him. If you're a Christian, you don't just have part of him. Sometimes what can happen in the way that division gets created is we can kind of feel left out. We can feel like we don't belong. Like, oh man, that's the group that... The Apollos group, they're really cool, and they understand this, and they have this, and they understand this teaching, and they, they have a really close friendship, the Apollos group, but I'm in the Cephas group, and, and to kind of make yourself feel better about that, you have to attack them a little bit. Similar, again, in, t- in sports teams, when someone's winning, then the losing team has to say, well, that's just because, and has to come up with a bunch of reasons. Well, you cheated in the draft, or the ref's this, or this, or whatever, you know, whatever sort of sports things that people say. And when he says Christ is not divided, part of what that means is you have all of him. You belong to all of him. You're not missing out 
on any part of him. You don't have to feel like you're losing or you don't, because you haven't read these certain things or heard this certain thing, that you're on the losing team. You have all of him, all of him. Christ is not divided. And then he asks the next, whoa, what in the world? Then he asks the next question, which was, was Paul crucified for you? Was Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? He's Paul. He's the one writing. And he's using himself, but by implication, all the different groups that are existing in division. Was Paul crucified for you? The answer is, of course, no. The only one that was crucified for you was Jesus. What does this do? Well, this relativizes whatever leader or teacher that we might be drawn to. Now, you might love the preaching of Apollos, but he wasn't crucified for you. You might love Peter and his passion, and oh man, that's the guy that cut off someone's ear. That's my guy. But you go, yeah, but he didn't, he wasn't crucified for you. You might love certain authors and thinkers and preachers and their gifting, and you might love certain ideas and causes and the ways that certain people have done certain things and the way certain things are said. Or they weren't crucified for you. That relativizes that person, makes them less important. Listen, I I love you as the pastor of this church, but. Honestly, I wouldn't be crucified for you. I might take a bullet for you, but I wouldn't be crucified for you. That's way too painful. And that's just the facts. That's just true for what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, you might have people that are good teachers and leaders, and, but they weren't crucified for you. That lowers the importance and the reason that that's important to lower the importance is because we have a tendency to align with certain things and say, this is my sense of worth and identity and value and the standard by which I judge other people that don't align, the standard by which I criticize. No NFL team was ever crucified for you. No hockey team was ever crucified for you. It relativizes. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have standards for leaders. It doesn't mean we don't look at certain people and say, ah, you know, they're not Jesus. It, it doesn't mean that. There are real sins that people can do that matter. But Paul is giving us something that can actually help us significantly. Protects from disappointment. Protects from even when our leaders and teachers and thinkers and causes are maybe do something that's a little different from what we would think. But we don't have to be totally wrapped up in them. When Paul says, who was crucified for you? That lowers the importance of whatever leader or cause or thinker we might attach ourselves to. And it says, who were you therefore really devoted to? Who has really captured your heart? Who is it that really has a hold of your affections, your love and your joy? Christ was crucified for you. He's the only one. Christ was crucified for you. 
when you were a sinner wandering away from God, when you were rejecting and ignoring God, the Bible says, while we were still enemies, before we had it figured out, before we said, I love you, before any, when we were still enemies, Jesus died for us. Only Jesus did that for you. Only Jesus, therefore, deserves the ultimate allegiance and the ultimate affection and love and submission. Because only he said, I will be crucified for you. I give myself for you. The righteous for the unrighteous, the godly for the ungodly, the perfect for the sinful. Only Jesus was crucified for you. Gave himself to you freely. Only him. No other leader, no other thinker, no other cause. Paul is saying, remember who was crucified for you. Look at him. That relativizes the importance of anybody else. And then he gives one last thing where he says, were you baptized in Paul's name? Were you baptized in Paul's name? And what he's saying here has to do with identity because it's easy to identify baptized in someone's name. It's easy to identify with someone's name, to take their name. Again, back to kind of some of the language I used before. If I'm a Mennonite or I'm a Calvinist or I'm a Lutheran, and I'm not, again, saying all that's bad. There's some kind of shorthand that that helps you know where someone's position maybe is on something. But it can be easy to take someone's name and associate all that they are with ourselves and get an identity from that. I'm a part of their name. This is where today some of the language you've heard of identity politics, where it's targeting specific identities that people have and campaigning to those groups of people. Because identity And the more you identify yourself with some grouping or some cause or some association, some experience, the more you identify with that and say, that's who I am, that's my name, the more that it divides you against others or people can appeal to that identity in you. And Paul says, no, you weren't baptized in their name. You don't belong to them. This is... Part of why he gives his whole point about baptism is because, because of what baptism is, it's, it was easy for them. I don't really think we have this issue as much today, but it was easy for them in their day to associate whoever baptized you as that, my identity, I belong to them. They attributed some kind of, oh, well, this was the person that baptized me, so I have this loyalty or I am a part of them in some kind of mystical way. Paul says, no, that's, that's not true. Baptism is important. That's part of Paul's point. But he says, whose name were you baptized into? You are baptized into the name of Jesus. Baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the name you're baptized into, not whoever baptized you. Paul says, that's why I didn't come just baptizing. He didn't show up just saying, who wants to get baptized? He showed up preaching about Jesus and saying, here's who Jesus is and here's what Jesus has done. Here's what Jesus did for you so that you are drawn to him and then you're baptized in his name. Paul knew that people could confuse that, so he 
didn't make it his main point to baptize people, but his associates baptized people. And he did baptize this guy and also this guy. And I forgot, I also baptized this guy. But his main point was, that's not who you were brought into. That's not the name that you were given. So how is unity formed? Unity is formed not just as we try to hash out the issues with one another. It's not even just formed as we think about our relationships with other people. It's not just, okay, I need to work on unity per se. It's formed as we remember who he is and what he's done. It's formed as we see Christ is not divided. Christ was crucified for me. And Christ has given me his name. The more that those truths get into our hearts together, the more that unity is created. So here's what this looks like. It it looks like when you are feeling kind of some division with somebody else, or maybe think of a past experience if it's not happening now. When you felt division with someone, you felt this tension with someone, maybe even around the kinds of things Paul is saying where it was this teacher or this leader or this thinker, what would happen if instead you remembered these things? Is Christ for them? Was Christ crucified for them? Do they have his name? Are we a part of the same family? What would that do if you viewed them that way? And if you viewed yourself that way? It was Jesus that died for me, not this thinker or teacher. It was Jesus who gave me his name, not this cause or this group or this association. I'm a part of Jesus, and they are a part of Jesus. What would that do to the conflicts and the divisions that we face? That's what people try to do with other things. When we go through crisis in a city, we're Boston strong, right? It's trying to say we're all united around this. Or even during COVID, there would be certain people that had put uh, like murals and things and said, we, we got this, Denver. It's trying to unite that together we are this. Like we can get through a crisis because we are Denver, or we are Boston, or aren't we all Americans? And you know, certain language that people try to reappeal to this identity and this deeper commonality. And most of the time it ends up being shallow. But this isn't. And Paul is saying you can't just look at the relationship in front of you. You have to look at Jesus. And the more you do that, the more unity actually is created. We want unity. Want to be able to get along. Want the peace that comes with unity and the affection and the mission of being united around a common cause together. We want that. And it can be hard, and it might get harder and harder as our world goes on and as November comes closer and other things happen. It might get harder and harder. So whether you're experiencing this now or need this as a tool for the future, we have to remember these things. When we take communion, we're remembering the unity that we have with Jesus and with one another. The word communion has the word unity in it. This union that we have with him, but it's a union that we also have with one another. We are united to him and therefore united to one another. We are united by his one body 
broken for us and his one blood shed for us. And because of that, he makes us family. Because of that, he makes us one. If you didn't grab one of those little cups on the way in, if you're a Christian, grab one of those cups. In a moment, after I pray, take communion when you are ready and then we'll respond in a few songs. Jesus gives us a deep unity that comes only through him. So take some time and confess if there's division and make a commitment to resolve that division with others. And pray that God would give you deeper unity with those around you and fight for that. And one last time, I would encourage you to register for our values class as a way to pursue unity with the people around you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for giving us your son, giving us the deepest foundation for unity that is possible. Forgive us that at times we seek to put ourselves above one another and seek to find ways to separate and divide instead of to unify. Forgive us that we can do that. Give us a deeper relational and convictional unity that is formed in you. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.